And we live. Okay. So apparently I've only done 25 weeks of this. I should have had all those buttons figured out by now, but guess what? <laughs> uh, I don't. <laughs> so with that being said, good afternoon, everyone. I'm constitutional attorney, Catherine Henry. Welcome to this week's episode of Restore Freedom Weekly. Today, I am actually, I'm going to step over in. All right. Today, I'm going to uh, do things a little <laughs> bit different. Um, I just scared Lori and Lando because they all of a sudden got super big on the screen. What but... are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to let you guys know that uh, we're going to be talking about um, some very important topics, actually topics that we've talked about in various formats um, many times already, especially the last two and a half years. But I wanted to bring in some um, people for different reasons. So Lando's going to share with us today um, two stories uh, that have been happening that um, ways that government officials have gone wrong and uh, often uh, or can be in tragic ways and um, how that's related to the lack of, of transparency for certain government officials or government uh, bodies. Lori um, is lucky enough, she doesn't have to share any particular stories or anything to let you know about, but uh, she's been a behind the scenes uh, person uh, since, at least May, I met Lori in May of 2020. And um, without Lori and without Mike, um, there would be no Restore Freedom. So um, at any rate, we're gonna, we had Lori kind of jump on board with us when I was guest hosting uh, another person's show on uh, Sunday evening and it worked really well. So um, one of the things that Lori's great about during these episodes is to be able to really help me keep an eye on the comments and questions, especially since I can't see real time on things like Rumble and whatnot. So um, at any rate, um, so good afternoon, everyone. And as you uh, probably are aware, if you saw the wording of the description today, we're going to be talking about government transparency. Um, so I guess I'm going to start with, um, you know, just telling you, obviously, in my case, my Allegan County Election Day 2020 case, which is still going on, um, there's huge issues. And if it weren't for the publicity, the postings, the live streaming and things like that, um, not just on Election Day 2020, but in several instances since then with the way the court has been dealing with this case, um, things would definitely be a lot worse. I mean, they're already terrible, but having that public watchful eye on the situation has uh, made a night and day difference as to, you know, certain things that have been happening in my own case. Um, and aside from my own case, I guess I, I probably should let you guys know why is it that I'm doing this topic and, and now? Well, um, you'll have to forgive me, but the document I threw together for you guys today, um, there's several pieces where I was copying and pasting from my legal brief. So I just referred to myself in the third person as Henry. But um, I point out there that I'm an attorney. 
I'm a licensed attorney. I'm admitted to practice. Um, I think it's only five now. It used to be six jurisdictions, but I haven't done any Minnesota cases in a long time. So anyway, um, I'm an officer of the legal system, though. And um, the Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct say that uh, an attorney who is an officer of the legal system has a special responsibility for the quality of justice. I mean, that sounds like a huge thing just to be a licensed attorney, but it is our job. And so an attorney has to be mindful of deficiencies in the administration of justice. That's also part of our Michigan Rules of Professional Conduct. And so as an attorney with these responsibilities, I take these responsibilities seriously. And as you guys know, I fight hard every day to remedy any of the deficiencies that we have in our justice system. It's gonna take me my entire career, but we will make things better. Now, in case any of you are new, I'm gonna take a brief pause here and to tell you that a lot of attorneys claim that they're out there being freedom fighters or that they're working for the underdog or they're making sure justice occurs. Um, I'm gonna tell you that I am a bit different than most people in that regard. I've been doing the fighting for the oppressed and freedom fighting type of work for 21 years as of this month, if you could believe it or not. I realize I look like I'm 25, but um, <laughs> I have been, uh, that's not good that that's the only thing you're laughing at right now, Lori. <laughs> I think it'd be that much of a stretch, but, um, but I have been working uh, for underserved populations and people who are at risk of losing the most of their liberties um, for 21 years. I have served as a public defender in two different states, uh, representing adults and misdemeanors. I've served uh, in abuse and neglect cases uh, as an attorney and represented kids who are being charged with juvenile delinquency offenses. Um, I have served as, uh, like I said, a lawyer in various, various jurisdictions. Um, Lori, where is that coming Sorry. from? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hearing everyone myself and um, <laughs> mind. But I've also served as a as a guardian ad litem, and then in Michigan they kind of do an uh oh, and they blend the two. But uh, as a lawyer and a guardian ad litem into one, I've served as all of that um, in children in abuse and neglect cases. Um, I've handled a lot of um, ugly divorce uh, custody cases, uh, served as a restorative justice facilitator in the school system and juvenile court system. I've been a mediator in child protection cases, special education situations, and for adult guardianships. I've literally devoted my entire career to fighting for people and their rights. It's just in the last two and a half years, I have focused solely on the constitutional freedom aspect and what we're dealing with. But um, a couple of other smaller points before we get to some of the new um, situations happening that have made national headlines. Um, so again, just three, three pieces I want to leave you with. No matter what, all the craziness or uh, a pandemic or 
you know, war or anything like that, something that's happening in, you know, Ukraine, and, and no matter what's going on in our world or in our communities, um, no matter how pressing an exigency of the time may appear, and this is a quote from the U.S. Supreme Court in 1866, the Constitution of the United States is a law for rulers and people at all times and under all circumstances. And it might seem simple, but I just kind of want to let that sink in. Just because we're experiencing something tragic or extraordinary or, you know, uh, September 11th, 2001, something like that, <clears throat> the Constitution is still there and it's still binding on everyone. There are no shortcuts or special exceptions. Um, and the Supreme Court um, also stated that, and um, the Michigan Supreme Court stated that very thought in 1865 as well. But although the examples I'm talking about today are, they are Michigan situations, the, the context is something that can be applicable in every state across our entire country. And um, I'm just going to be referencing the, a lot of Michigan statutes and, and parts of the Constitution for Michigan. But again, your state will have these kinds of statutes and your Constitution will have these kinds of provisions too. Um, at least you now will know what to look for. Um, so the very first thing besides the preamble in the Michigan Constitution is a simple sentence. All political power is inherent in the people. That's really important when we're thinking about why would we even talk about government transparency? And then lastly, to let you know why we're going over this, look at Article 1, Section 3 of our Michigan State Constitution. And it says, the people have the right peaceably to assemble, to consult for the common good, to instruct their representatives, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Now, it's almost word for word with um, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, with the exception of the addition that Michigan residents also explicitly uh, have the right to instruct their representatives. I mean, we do everywhere in the whole country, but that wording just put it point blank, undeniably, uh, <laughs> that we have that right. So... With all that being said, that's why uh, it's important that we talk about the general topic of government transparency. But as far as timeliness, well, my case, uh, you know, having been um, in between, it was trial date number seven, and now I'm between that and the new trial date number eight, uh, my appeals are pending, all that other fun stuff. There's a lot of very timely things happening just in my case alone. But I'm not the only one that's had issues with Allegan County Sheriff's Department not quite observing the Constitution. With that being said, Lando, um, can you uh, share with us, um, you know, what, what for anybody who doesn't know you, which would probably be impossible, but um, for them to share um, where you're from and um, and then just roll right on into what happened in December 2020 or 2019, whatever yeah. year it was. Yeah, so I'm Orlando Estrada. I live in Ottawa County all my life. I'm a precinct delegate 
Um, I, I'm a, in a, I'm a contractor. I do a lot of side work. Um, this particular night, I don't normally do things in uh, Allegan County. I was helping out a local restaurant that needed some help that I have uh, family and friends with. So about one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night turned Sunday morning, I was driving through Allegan. Um, a lot of people who know me know that, you know, I might go a little fast, but I was really tired and just wanted to go home. There's no traffic out there. There's nobody out there. Uh, so to make a long story short, um, I like when all three of us were on there, but that's fine. All right. So to make a long story short, you know, I got pulled over. I'm like, okay, probably going a little fast. Not a big deal. Right. Um, a lot of people don't know my job description was to travel to uh, schools, universities, educate students on the dangers of drug and alcohol awareness, um, the constitution, vaping, stuff of that nature. So, um, I just got done with some traveling, helped out this mom and pop restaurant, and I'm really tired heading home. So when I get pulled over, got my luggage in the back, all that jazz. Now, what I thought was interesting is it took a while for the officer to get to my window, which is fine. Because I know typically when a police officer, uh, before they approach the window, they're going to run your license plate. They're probably going to find out if maybe you have a warrant or maybe you're wanted or if you have insurance or if the car's even registered to any particular name. And that's completely fine. And before I move on my story, I am not about defunding the police, but I do believe oath breakers should lose their job. That's just my take on that. So whenever I get pulled over in any situation, I always record it with my iPhone just to make sure that everybody's got the story straight. Because maybe I might misspeak. Maybe the officer might misspeak. It's for my protection and their protection. Uh, well, on this particular day, I have my driver's license in my hand. And I do have this all on video, by the way. So everybody says that I'm not being legit. It's, it is on video. Anyway, so he comes to my window and just asks for the standard driver's registration, license, all that jazz. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. My car isn't quite clean. I travel a lot, so my paperwork is everywhere. Um, my driver's license are in my hand. I give it to him immediately, and I ask him why he pulled me over because he didn't tell me why he pulled me over. And he said that he said that his radar clocked me at 10 over. I'm like, okay, that's fine. That's fair. Whatever. So I found my car registration and hand it to him. And... I was like, oh, can't find my car insurance pieces of paper. Well, maybe he ran my place and knows I have it. Uh, I was at the end of my six-month policy, and I got my six-month policy renewed. But when you're traveling on the road across the nation, my legal mail is at home, not with me when I'm traveling. So I got my new policy insurance cards in the mail, but they weren't with me in the car. But moving on, uh, since he was asking me, you know, where am I coming from? Where am I going? I'm super tired. I'm just looking for the paperwork. Uh, ultimately, he was like, if you cannot, you know, tell me if I have any car insurance or not, why don't you jump out of the vehicle? And I said, you can look at my plates. You can write me the ticket. I'm looking for it. But I don't want to answer any more questions because I don't want to say anything misleading. He was asking me other questions during the stop. And I said, with all respect, don't answer questions because I don't, I'm, it's one o'clock in the morning. I'm super tired. I'm not going to get conned into saying something or misspeak or any of that nature. A lot of people don't know when you get pulled over, you have the right to remain silent. And I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I'm not trying to get around things. It's just that if I'm uncomfortable with the question, I don't truly know the answer. I don't need him saying that I was lying during the interaction. So it's all on video, by the way. So when he tells me to jump out of the vehicle, he opens my car door to prevent the situation from escalating, I put my phone in my pocket, and as soon as I plant both feet on the uh, grab on the on the road, he gives me a dirty little look and he chokes me 
slams you on the ground and says, I'm resisting arrest. Now I'm thinking as this happening, it's like, is this really happening to me? Like I thought stuff that you see on TV or something that happens in a big city. Then the second thing I'm thinking is, well, if he has cameras on his persons or his vehicles, like a normal police department anywhere in Michigan, I would think they're going to see that he immediately grabbed me once I got out. But long story short, you know, he had called for backup before he asked me to get out of the car. I'm sorry, jump out of the car telling me. And uh, backup was there in 20 seconds flat. I was already underground. He's a big dude, by the way. I don't have a reason to fight somebody who has a gun who's bigger than me and somebody that does things with nonprofits or does public service types of things. It, it's not logical. I'm just really tired. So I'm still trying to articulate what's going on. And I'm thinking about if this guy's doing this to me, who else is he doing this to? So make a long story short, um, there are some falsified police reports that are written against me. This officer lied under oath, not once, not twice, probably three times in two different court appearances. Once again, I do have the video and I do have the DVD. And there's a reason why I have not released it yet, because I do believe in doing things the right way and giving an opportunity for people to, you know, apologize, say that they're wrong. But we're kind of getting to that deadline. Uh, but but to, to wrap up the story is this is causing people time, money and effort. And this is what I learned when I got an attorney. Oh, the Allen County deputies do not have cameras on their persons or their vehicles. And I'm like, why? I mean, don't they have money? Don't they want to be held accountable? What if I'm making up a story, whatever? So this tells me, had I not recorded the first half of the interaction, because unfortunately that second half was not recorded, I got nothing. They could just say, I'm a, a criminal, charge me two or three charges, and it's going to be my word against theirs, and it, it's horrible. So what, what happened with somebody who doesn't have the resource like I do with money I had saved up or the people I'm well connected with to fight this over two years. And I identified Catherine Henry. She's been fighting this for close to two years. My case has been fought for over two years. So I'm a police officer who falsified police report against me. I have a video on it. I have the DVDs of the court hearings and I could just be a complete jerk about this. But the bottom line is I'm trying to be peaceful. I'm not trying to be like this. What I did learn since then is that Officer Michael Murphy has multiple complaints of very similar interactions where he'll say that your driver's license is suspended or revoked or whatever, ask the guy to get out of the car and roughs them up. Now, regardless, I'm not out to get the whole department. I'm out to correct individuals that are doing wrong because it seems to be this recurring theme that we don't have a camera on our vehicles or persons. So if somebody upsets us or hurts our feelings, then maybe we can get them to escalate it. I do know there are great police officers that know how to de-escalate, but then there are bullies who don't have any accountability and they think that they can get away with any type of interaction. So I don't want to go into the big rant because I'm not going to play victim. I'm a victor. I'm fine. I'm mentally fine. I've been praying about it. It's going to be okay. Things are going to take place. I'll be releasing things later on this year. But I want to quick bring up what recently happened. And this is why people need to start speaking up. This stuff's got to stop. A 22-year-old, this is according to WZZM News 13 in Grand Rapids. In Allen County, a 22-year-old Comstock Park man was fatally shot by a deputy during a traffic stop Thursday in Allen County. Police said the shooting happened just after 10 p.m. on 26th Street in Salem Township. A deputy had performed a traffic stop 
on a vehicle and the shooting happened uh, during the stop. Now, it's still under investigation. It's under investigation by the state police. But let's be honest here. You got a driver who's dead and you got a police officer who shot him. There's only one witness now. That's the guy that shot him. How do you think he's going to follow that with police support? He's going to tell the truth. He's going to write his favor to save his job because there's no cameras on their persons or vehicles. It, it's crazy. Like the city of Holland, even the Ottawa County deputies, even the state police, they have cameras on their persons or vehicles to make sure that everybody's being correct in what kind of police work that they file, what they're actually saying, or even if the guy that was stopped during traffic, it makes sure that he's being held accountable for telling the truth. So what would happen right now if Catherine Henry's supporters didn't have cell phones or cameras recording her saying that she's not trespassing because obviously she's on public property, you know, grass, you know, parking lot, stuff of that nature. If those cameras weren't there, would people take Catherine Henry seriously? Because once again, the Allen County deputies do not have person order vehicles. And I want to make this clear too. I'm not out here to say that the Allen County deputies, all of them are bad. I've had interactions with Allen County deputies that were positive interactions where they did respect me when they pulled me over and let me go with the warning. And I appreciate them for upholding their oath and their constitution to the United States and uh, the state of Michigan. But once again, there are others who think that the prosecutor is God. And there are others who think I don't got a camera. So if this person upsets me, I'm just going to make up stuff because I get away with it all the time. It's going to stop at some point. So uh, with that being said, there's more I could say, but I think you guys get the gist of it. Yes. <clears throat> Thank you, Lando, for going through all that. Um, so basically, if you guys have been living under a rock for the last few days and didn't catch that, um, the reason why we felt it was timely to talk about this right now was because um, <clears throat> since our last show had happened, uh, there was a tragic incident where a 22-year-old young man uh, was killed at the hands of an Allegan County Sheriff's deputy. And um, they, you know, there was supposedly, you know, a firearm involved, but yet no investigators ever found this firearm. Um, the deputy, <clears throat> at least from what I've seen, does not... Um, I, it doesn't look like he has any injuries, but certainly um, that he had, you know, no significant or major injuries of any kind. Um, so without there being some sort of threat from a firearm or some other weapon uh, and the fact that, you know, obviously there wasn't too much of a, of a scuffle as in an equal footing type of situation because the deputy shows no physical signs of having been harmed in some way then is that really the kind of scenario we want to, um, first of all, keep giving the benefit of the doubt to a sheriff's deputy? Um, we look to our law enforcement to protect and serve. Um, you know, we, uh, all of us in our, in our generation grew up to, to think of, okay, if you're ever, you know, experiencing some emergency or there's something terribly wrong, you know, look for a police officer, look for someone in law enforcement, call law enforcement. You know, that's the kind of way that we grew up thinking. And, you know, I would like to know that I can feel comfortable doing that going forward, but these are real things and they're scary. And quite frankly, a lot of the things that the, um, 
groups like BLM and, and others have been protesting about and, and quite frankly, doing things oftentimes the wrong way and violently and, you know, rioting and things like that, which is not going to help anything. But the, the underlying concerns that come about when you have people that are dying at the hands of law enforcement officers is, you know, what, where's the accountability for these officers and why are they not given appropriate training? What are the tools that we can use to make sure there is true accountability for decisions that are made in the moment with law enforcement, for decisions that are made by governing bodies, for decisions that are made in courtrooms? You know, our whole government, every branch in it should be under our watchful eye. That is the purpose of today's conversation government transparency. How can we stop the the needless deaths of, you know, 22-year-old uh, young men or, you know, any number of other people who've been harmed in any kind of way? Um, from, you know, me, in my case, from what my daughter experienced and witnessed uh, to, you know, what Lando went through to, um, I know somebody who lives in Allegan County who came out that very day in, in Layton Township to help me. And she has a history with Allegheny County where uh, the the law enforcement officers involved were definitely doing things um, inappropriately. Uh, and so she doesn't feel safe with law enforcement uh, in her own county. So um, it's really it's really an important conversation to have. Uh, and, and I'm someone that, you know, I shop at thrift stores and garage sales and I get, you know, everything that's cheap. And four years ago, five years ago, my husband and I saw this um, company. I can't remember what their the name is now, but it's a local like T-shirt type of company. We saw them at a gun show. Uh, great guys. Um, they're veterans. And um, at any rate, uh, we paid like $25 or $30 to have each for, for two thin blue line shirts. And, you know, we want, we were proud to support uh, law enforcement in general. I mean, and like I said, I'm a cheapskate. So for me to spend 25 or 30 bucks on a t-shirt, are you kidding me? Um, <laughs> that's not how I roll, but we wanted to make sure that we were sharing that message with others when we went places that we need to support our law enforcement officers but what we need to do is support transparency in their work environments and uh, encourage and require and mandate education and training that's going to help them. Um, so Lori and Lando, if you um, if you guys come up with anything or think of things along the way, you know, jump in. Um, well. Yeah, I, I I think part of this transparency is they aren't in a building doing their job where their boss can oversee what they're doing. They're out there often alone, interacting with citizens and and the whatnot without nobody's watching them. And and especially in the beginning, and employ how can you be sure? that the story that the officer perceived was the actual story. Even they may be intentionally, not intentionally trying to lie, but that's their perception of it versus um, if you had the camera showing 
while their memory says this happened, all of a sudden they'll catch, oh, I made a mistake here, and then be able to, it's not to necessarily punish the, them as much as it is to correct them. And then if they don't correct themselves, you know, go from there. But. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that's, yeah, sorry. I have like so many thoughts rolling around in my head <laughs> at the same time. But um, so what we're, what we're advocating for bottom line is governmental transparency. Why? Well, those go to some of the core things that I shared with you at the beginning. Um, I mean, the timing is because of these things that have recently transpired, but um, why overall? Because aside from the fact that our entire government, uh, our U.S. government, let alone our state governments, are made of the people, by the people, and for the people, and that we have the sovereign power and authority here, uh, that government works for us, that this is a representative type of government, a republic, um, we have very clear um, provisions in the state constitution in Michigan where all these issues are happening that we're talking about today, uh, starting with all political powers inherent in the people. How can the people possibly exercise that power if they don't even have access to what's going on? Um, and we have the right uh, in Article 1, Section 3 of the state constitution in Michigan to instruct our representatives as well as to petition the government for redress of grievances. Again, how can we know what instruction is needed or what uh, redress should be taken if we don't know the facts of any given scenario, if we're shut out of public meetings or uh, we're not given copies of public documents, if we're um, you know, not able to see body cam or dash cam footage from law enforcement officers who are claiming the need for self-defense. Uh, these are all things that it's it's hard for we the people to properly manage and control our government if we don't have governmental transparency. Um, so I wanted to kind of roll into what are some of the tools? What are what are really what are we talking about? It's not just cameras. Well, the first one is OMA, the Open Meetings Act. Um, it's that's what it's called in Michigan. Uh, there's um, different um, names that it's called in, in different states and with the federal government, but that's essentially what it is: the Open Meetings Act, uh, FOIA, Freedom of Information Act. Again, there's a federal statute. We'll go over that in a minute. Um, and there's you know state statutes, but the Freedom of Information Act, uh, of course, where you request records. Um, open hearings, basically the, the concept of having public proceedings, uh, those are um, very important. And, oh shoot, did I forget? Um, I was gonna put one of them on there. Oh, no, I did that. Okay. Um, so um, mostly in the context of, of court proceedings is what I'm getting at in that regard. And then um, the, the general concept of due process. How can we have due process in any particular situation when anybody is facing having their life, liberty, or property removed or diminished in any way? How can we ensure that they are given due process if there's some transparency missing in how those decisions come about. So, I mean, we can't. So, um, so let's kind of break it down. Let's see here. Um, let's see if I'm smart enough to do this again. All right. And I have to somehow make this bigger, even though it's not cooperating. 
Oh, give me a second here. While you're trying to perfect that, uh, part of it is they are so used to us not caring and not wanting them to be transparent because we've been too busy with ourselves. So we got to retrain them on that transparency ourselves when we're getting involved locally and, and talking to our commissioners and trying to get the information we want. I just wanted to bring that up. I actually tag with uh, what Lori said there. A lot of people don't know how to properly defend themselves or how to go on offense. For example, one thing I learned this journey is if you want to hold a police officer accountable when you can prove they legitimately did wrong, you have to go after their bonds or their county bonds. Now you got your attention. Because you start messing with the enemy's money or their time and their efforts, now they're going to start waking up. So they got people are roughing up like me or Catherine and unfortunately the gentleman that died. And it's about, you know, making money, exercising, abusing their authority. So you need to learn how to attack those bonds. And there is a step-by-step -step process on how to hold them accountable because no one wants to lose their job. And no one wants to say that this person cost us money and all that stuff. So you have to learn how to go after their bonds. But we'll talk about well, I'm going to pause you there, Lando, because <laughs> that's total garbage. <laughs> going yeah, after they, yeah. bonds doesn't do going after bonds doesn't do anything we did a whole episode on that in february when yeah, sir, uh, i want you to go after their bonds and take their money they, they ruined your life it's, but that's <laughs> that's not how it works it just literally doesn't work that way if it was that easy we would have just done that a long time ago i'm on um, step three <laughs> it's the bonds are never going to be anything they it's never a way well, to get anything okay, done let me, let me redact my information we need to do a thorough investigation of how to put them in the public opinion in the paper on video like what Catherine doing so they can be held accountable continue <laughs> <laughs> um, so at any rate we will i'm sure have another conversation later on about um, a little bit more in depth so people can understand things like the bonds uh, ideas and, and why it wouldn't work and what can work and, and things like that. But we're just kind of taking freedom fighting one step at a time here. Um, so like I mentioned, open meetings, that's the first of these four big pieces that really go into governmental transparency. Um, in the state constitution, again, I'm referencing the Michigan state constitution usually. Um, if you see on the screen, it's talking about constitution section 1983, or constitution 1963. That is the Michigan state constitution. But um, I do have a few references to the Florida state constitution. And again, if you live somewhere else outside of Michigan or Florida, your state will have similar things. You just have to look for them. But um, in the Michigan Constitution, Article 4, Section 20, um, might as well read it verbatim, but it says, open meetings, great title, the doors of each house, and this is of the legislature, because this, this is in the part of the state constitution about the legislature, the doors of each house shall remain open unless the public security otherwise requires, period. And that was in the former state constitution of 1908 as well. So well over 100 years, uh, the provision for open meetings for legislative meetings um, has been in the state constitution. 
Um, if you look at the Open Meetings Act in the state of Michigan, it's Act 267 of 1976. Um, that was a year they were really uh, happy about going to town on all these big acts because, of course, the public health code, a lot of those provisions are from 1976. And, of course, the Emergency Management Act is also from 1976. Uh, but we won't go over those today. Uh, but the statutes themselves, it starts with MCL 15.261 and goes to uh, MCL 15.275. Uh, you can search for the Florida version, which is um, the title of it is Public Business Miscellaneous Provisions, Chapter 286. Um, and essentially, uh, this is actually from um, a, um, I think I might have pulled this from Cornell, or it might actually be from a, a federal government website too. Um, but this next part here. Much like legislative and court records, legislative and court proceedings are generally open to the public and schedules or dockets of upcom upcoming proceedings are available. With regard to executive and other agencies, open meeting laws require agencies to publish advance notice of certain proceedings, such as formal rulemaking hearings, enforcement proceedings, or other administrative matters. Uh, it's the basic of all things that you have open, that the public can see what's happening if your rights are going to be even remotely infringed. Uh, it needs to be an open meeting where the public can weigh in. And quite frankly, just to have that pressure, even if nobody says anything, for a government official to do something behind closed doors, any coward can do that. But if a government official is going to try to take away your life, liberty, or your property, and they have to do that by sitting face to face with a room full of actual human beings, there's going to be uh, another sense of responsibility that kicks in. Now, obviously, we know that doesn't fix everything. It, there's a lot of situations where evil abounds and people are aloof or oblivious to what their constituents want but it does make a difference. It does have an impact. That's why I've been asking people to show up on July 7th and July 13th for my next hearing dates in Allegan County. Um, because I know the only way that I'm literally physically safe in that building is if the people are there, if the public is there, if the media is there, if people are live streaming it, if, if there's a huge crowd inside and outside of the building, that is the only way I literally will be physically safe in that building. And that's that's kind of a sad situation, isn't it? That I, I'm not afraid of much, but they are so lawless there that I don't feel safe. Uh, and this is the same agency that is responsible for the death of the 22-year-old Comstock Park man less than a week ago. Um, so the, the, this website went on to um, say that various federal statutes establish open meeting requirements for the various federal agencies. Uh, they, they publish notices of upcoming meetings and hearings in the Federal Register. Uh, the Federal Advisory Committee Act applies to government committees that advise the president and executive agencies on specific matters. Uh, most federal agencies are subject to open meeting provisions within the government in the Sunshine Act. And um, that particular law requires every portion of every meeting of an agency to be open to public observation. 
The exemptions to this requirement are similar to those found in the Freedom of Information Act, uh, such as national defense, internal agency matters, or other matters covered by privacy statutes. I don't even agree with the internal agency matters. Um, they don't spell it out very well because they're making it sound like, oh, all housekeeping or administrative tasks get to be, you know, kept in secret. That's not true either. Um, but if we then hop over to FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, that's where you're requesting records that have not otherwise been provided or easily obtainable. Uh, in Michigan, that's Act 442 of 1976, and the statutes are MCL 15.231 through 15.246. Um, and did I copy the wrong one? Oh, no. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> um, and uh, in Florida, it's Chapter 119 of the Florida Statutes. That's the chapter on public records. Uh, for the federal statutes, United States Code, you can look up 5 U.S.C. Section 552. So that's the Freedom of Information Act at the federal level. Um, and again, this wording I got from the, um, the government website. It is a federal freedom of information law that requires the full or partial disclosure of previously unreleased information and documents controlled by the United States government upon request. And if you go to www.foia.gov, uh, this is actually a sentence right off of there. I found it kind of funny. I'll explain why. The basic function of the Freedom of Information Act is to ensure informed citizens vital to the functioning of a democratic society. Um, I love when our federal government puts on a federal government website that we have a democratic society kind of forgetting about Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution that clearly explains we have a constitutional republic, but I guess that's neither here nor there. Uh, the whole point, though, we can agree on is that there needs to be measures in place that regulate the government, not people. FOIA, uh, the OMA, those are not there to regulate the people. Those are there to regulate the government bodies further than what they're already regulated, uh, to let them know transparency is what's important and required. And it's because we need to ensure informed citizens, because citizens cannot exercise that um, inherent political power if they don't know what the heck's going on. Um, and then again, this is not my wording. This is from that website. Other important federal open record statutes include the Ethics in Government Act of 1978, which requires the disclosure of certain public officials' financial and employment history, which can be very interesting, and the Presidential Records Act of 1978, which mandates the preservation of official presidential records and makes most of them available through FOIA. All right, so uh, the third prong to this. Um, governmental transparency requirement is going to be that of having open hearings, public hearings in court cases. So um, decisions of the Supreme Court, including all decisions on prerogative writs, shall be in writing and shall contain a concise statement of the facts and the reasons for each decision and the reasons for each denial of leave to appeal. If a judge dissents, a judge from the, the Michigan Supreme Court, in whole or in part, he shall give in writing the reasons for his 
dissent. That is the Michigan State Constitution, Article 6, Section 6. Um, and that's it's more going to, you know, the records aspect of it, but it's part of having that oversight, that public oversight that when decisions are made, not from the bench that day, but when they're taken under advisement, you know, there's a hearing, there's oral argument, testimony, whatever. And then the court then later has to think about it and then figure out what they're going to do um, because they're each like meeting in their own offices and they're each, you know, writing draft opinions and kind of doing things on their own. In that sense, it's different than a normal public body where the whole public body meets, discusses and makes a decision in the open. But that's why we still need that governmental transparency. That's why uh, the Michigan State Constitution spells out that all decisions have to be in writing. The reason why has to be clearly put in writing. People need to be able to have that way to see exactly what the decisions have been made and, and what's the reasoning behind them. But of course, as far as having public proceedings, public court proceedings, there's also the requirement that we have speedy and public trials. Uh, the U.S. Constitution, of course, that's in the um, Sixth Amendment. The state constitution of Michigan, that's in Article 1, Section 20. Uh, again, it's in your own state constitution. I can almost guarantee you that without having read all state constitutions. Um, but uh, a Michigan, uh, I think it's a Michigan Supreme Court case. I just have the short site here. But um, the Detroit Free Press case in Michigan from 1985 says that the court has a duty to provide facilities for a reasonable number of the public as well. So if there's an expectation that a case might bring in, you know, a typical trial, say in district court in Michigan, district court is basically like the lowest level of trial courts in Michigan. Um, so circuit court is where you have the bigger, more important matters, um, you know, criminal cases, it would be the, the felonies or high court misdemeanors. Uh, in civil cases, it's disputes over $25,000. It's um, things about real estate or, you know, property. But in district court, it's stuff for civil cases, it's stuff that's less than $25,000. Uh, for criminal cases, they're only handling trials for misdemeanors, uh, the low level offenses. So it's like the baby version of court, basically, in that sense. But in, and in a typical day, you know, I mean, I've served as a public defender representing adults and misdemeanors in two different states. And, you know, even when I was a public defender in Minnesota, a very small town, I would um, go to hearings. I don't remember what day of the week they were. Let's say I think they were Mondays. Uh, and I would have as many as 15 hearings all stacked up that morning. Uh, in that system, I was actually the only public defender handling misdemeanors for that county. It's a very small area. Um, but what that led to is that I might have 15 hearings uh, all in one morning on, um, on criminal cases. Um, but each of those hearings might have, you know, two people, one person, nobody uh, coming to attend besides those that are actually the participants in, in the case. Um, sometimes you might have a few. If you have a full trial, you know, you might get a handful of people, but the courtrooms were very small. Um, Wyndham, Minnesota, if you've ever been there, um, that is uh, it's the courthouse I'm envisioning right now in front of uh, then Judge uh, Bruce Gross. I don't know if he's still on the bench today, but at any rate, um, very small area. 
uh, Allegan County District Courts are um, pretty similar in size to the um, uh, courts I was just mentioning in Minnesota. Um, you know, very few spots. I mean, there's maybe two like church pew type of uh, bench seating areas on either side. And then um, basically just the spot for the jury and, you know, for the two attorneys and parties. And that's it. It's not really set up to be a big space because typically speaking, you don't have a bunch of people there. But if there's a bunch of people that they know would be coming or even are likely to come to a particular situation, uh, the court has a duty to provide facilities for a reasonable number of the public. Uh, and that's been something that clearly has been expressed by the higher courts in Michigan since 1985. Um, and uh, another aspect to this, you know, in my case, supposedly uh, the, the um, uh, you know, a big reason why the court has been denying my rights, they're claiming they have to do all these restrictions because of COVID. Well, this is from the, the Supreme Court of Michigan, their administrative office. Constitutional, statutory, and court rule requirements, right? So there's there's provisions of the Constitution, there's provisions in state law, and there's provisions in court rules that there's requirements that court proceedings must all be public. What this is saying, what, they, what the Supreme Court Administrative Office reminded us, and even in April 2020, on April 30th, is that um, these public proceedings, these court proceedings have to remain public even during a state of emergency. Even when you have administrative or excuse me, executive orders issued by a governor or a president or whomever that's claiming there's an emergency and you got to shut down the state or do whatever, you still have to recognize the constitution, the state laws and the court rules that require hearings and court proceedings to be in public. State law, one of the state laws that are referenced there, NCL 600.1420. Again, if you're in another state, there are similar provisions. You just have to find them in your own state uh, uh, legislature records. But in Michigan, it's NCL 600.1420, which mandates that all sittings of every court within the state shall be public. Shall be public. There, there's no choice except that a court may, for good cause shown, exclude people for one of three extremely limited circumstances. And the next part here on the screen is what the state law says about that. So you can exclude people under Michigan state law for one of these three limited circumstances. One, witnesses in a case when they are not testifying and may in actions involving immorality, uh, well, that's rolling into the second one. The first one is just witnesses, basically saying you can sequester witnesses, not exclude the public, but because witnesses are considered part of the public, they're saying in this statute, okay, you can exclude witnesses. And I've had that, you know, in my jury trials where we were sequestering witnesses. So the witnesses were not supposed to talk to each other or anybody else before providing their testimony. So while the case is happening, while the trial is happening, they're supposed to kind of keep it to themselves so that the truth and, and their, their testimony is untainted from any kind of outside influence. Um, that's exception number one. Exception number two is that for a minor child who has to testify, 
um, in a situation they call it scandal or immorality, um, where a minor child is a party or a witness. Uh, it's basically talking criminal sexual conduct types of cases, um, rape and other things like that. So, uh, so a child basically, it, it's really more to not traumatize the child who you know is either a party or is a um, uh, a witness that you know you can exclude members of the public during those super sensitive portions of testimony. If again, these are not just givens, but these still have to be done by the court for good cause shown. So just because you might have a criminal sexual conduct or rape case involving a minor doesn't mean that the court can just automatically close out the public from being able to see those proceedings. No, there has to be uh, an, an, a rare circumstance where this is needed in that particular moment, because although we do need to protect the rights of minors, and as a parent of four, I certainly understand that, especially with three daughters, I certainly can understand that. But we also have to recognize that we're all innocent until proven guilty. And so we maintain our rights. And how can we, uh, how can a person who's uh, charged with any kind of, you know, criminal sexual conduct case fully get a fair proceeding if the whole proceeding is closed to the public? Again, th there are two different balances uh, sometimes in those situations. But um, the third is that um, it's for cases of national security. Well, clearly in my case, uh, national security, because I was standing on the grass on township property on election day, circulating petitions, right. Uh, clearly none of those are involved in my situation. Um, so um, again, here's some things that just to help you think about if in case you're wondering, well, why is that so important? And we're not just talking about court cases, but if you think about it, uh, a lot of things end up getting to court, especially these days. You know, people are being arrested left and right. We had another Republican um, election worker or um, poll watcher that was in training just last week, I believe it was, at the TCF Center in Detroit, get arrested for criminal trespass because he couldn't or wouldn't wear a mask. That's not a thing. So for him to have a fair outcome here, uh, the charges should be dropped if they're not already ready. Uh, but the only way he's going to get a fair outcome is if every stage of the proceeding, the public is there. They can see exactly what's going on, what the court's doing, what the prosecutor is doing. So um, this is, um, these are statements from uh, court hearings. These are from the Michigan Supreme Court way back even in the 1800s. Uh, and then some cases from the United States Supreme Court again. So that would be applicable to everyone who's watching. But um, the requirement of a public trial is for the benefit of the accused. Again, what I was talking about of, of having that, um, those watchful eyes from the members of the public that obviously benefits the person accused of wrongdoing. That the public may see he is fairly dealt with and not unjustly condemned, and that the presence of interested spectators may keep his triers keenly alive to the sense of their responsibility and to the importance of their functions. With that wording, it's obvious it was from the 1800s, but uh, it's been that way since the beginning. We need to have full access for the public so that 
the jurors take this seriously. The judge, the prosecutors, that everyone involved recognizes how serious it is, even if it's a minor offense. It's serious. Any deprivation of life, of liberty, or of property, any deprivation is not justified just because the government wants to, just because it's no big deal, just because it's a, a small fine or fee, or because it's only, you know, 90 days in jail or something like that. No, any deprivation of rights, we are given these specific protections for a reason. Um, and the courts go on to explain that it's under the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and the 14th Amendment that the public and the press have a right to access court proceedings. This right of public access includes access to the jury selection, to all the preliminary hearings, and to the trial itself, not just to the end result, which is the trial. The public has an interest in seeing that justice is administered openly and publicly, just in general, on any case. Um, I have a couple more things that I want to wrap up that point, but I want to make sure Lori and Lando, is there anything that we I'll see Lori ran away from the screen. Um, <laughs> uh, before I wrap up this particular point, were there any questions that I, cause I can't see the comments anymore. I had to make my other screen bigger so you guys could see it. Um, any, anything we need to touch on before I continue? I, I think it's always good to give a friendly reminder about your motion to dismiss and your trial date. So people know, uh, where to watch and where to go like myself to make sure that things there's no there's no confusion um and people need to stay on top of being vigilant and watching shows like this because i don't know where i'm going to learn this in school unless i take a special law class and i think people should be grateful for what you're doing should actually donate some stars to this channel but other than that i think we should talk about when your court dates are okay uh, by the way, Lori, I think you have access to, if you see comments that you want to display at the bottom, I think you're allowed to do that by clicking on them. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, feel free as we're going through, because I'm, I'm usually trying to scroll up the parts that I'm referencing at the moment, so it shouldn't be covered up or anything. But um, so again, a lot of words in the screen, guys, but this is important. This is the stuff you need to know. As my friend Joel uh, Ibbotson in Barry County recently said, um, shoot, and I got to get the exact wording from him, but basically if you don't know about your rights, you don't have them. That's actually, um, the very first part of the video we shared about you go when you went to Hastings, that's right. the, where the video starts is him saying that. So go to our rumble channel and look for that Hastings speaking of that recent one then they'll be able to hear those words exactly. Right, so you'll be able to hear him word for word say it out of his own mouth, but it, it basically what he was getting at is you only have the rights that you know about. If you don't know a right exists, how can you possibly exercise that right or you know, fight for that right? You can't. So this stuff might seem, you know, oh my gosh, it's overwhelming or you know, gosh, it seems obvious there should be government transparency or whatever. I'm trying to give you the tools so you know what the statutes say. You know what the Constitution says on this topic. You also know what the Michigan and U.S. Supreme Courts have consistently said throughout the years about these topics. And um, on Thursday, we'll uh, share this, this document with you as well. And if you sign up for the newsletter, 
um, that's how you get actual, you know, easy access to the PDFs and, and slideshows and stuff I've created throughout the week as well. So don't forget to do that. Um, and as far as what Lando was saying with my own case, um, yeah, just a refresher or reminder that um, I have two motions to dismiss and a bunch of other related types of motions uh, about my rights in front of the court on July 7th at 10 a.m. in the Allegan County Courthouse in the District Courthouse. And the trial, the jury trial is set for July 13th at 9 a.m. And I'm asking for people to come up and support me, even if you're not from Michigan, uh, even if you're not from Allegan County. Um, I'd ask for anybody and everybody to be there who values freedom, who values the Constitution, who values our God-given liberties, and, you know, wear a lot of purple for Restore Freedom. Or uh, let us know if you want to... Um, purchase the Restore Freedom shirt. We don't have them in full on our on our store anymore, but we do still have some that we could uh, give to you at the cost that, that we got them for, um, which Lori would have to totally remind me because I have no idea anymore. Um, <laughs> but we, um, you know, we'd love to see you there with uh, American flags and, you know, um, signs about the Constitution and God-given liberties and any of that will show them, give them the message that the public is watching. And that's what today's episode, the whole episode is all about. So just continuing a few thoughts that are very important to take note of. Um, it is important that our citizens be free to observe court proceedings to ensure a sense of confidence in the judicial process that can avoid apprehension and distrust of the legal system. Clearly, there's a lot of distrust of the legal system right now because we don't have that openness. Uh, but again, this is um, the Michigan Supreme Court from 1980 is going on to explain that uh, because a criminal prosecution is brought in the very name of the people, it's the people of the state of Michigan versus... And then in my case, Catherine Henry, the people of the state of Michigan versus Catherine Henry. It doesn't even seem right because in 2020 and beyond, I've been literally a, a voice for the people of the state of Michigan. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the Michigan Supreme Court pointed out that because the case, a criminal case is brought in the name of the people, the public has a substantial interest in seeing that its concerns are adequately presented um, and it points out that the public is a party, literally the party, it's the named party, uh, to all criminal proceedings. The proceeding is prosecuted in the name of the public, and there is nothing that better protects the right of the public than their own presence in the proceedings where their rights are on trial. In addition, the public's concern extends to actions. This is the best part. And think about it in my in the an example of my case with the deputies with the uh, prosecuting attorney, with the judges uh, that have been involved, uh, but also think about it in the context of the deputy involved in the recent shooting in Allegan County. The public's concern extends to the actions of its legal officers, the judge and the prosecutor. In Michigan, these officials are elected, which adds a dimension to the societal interests involved. The performance of essential responsibilities by the judge and the prosecutor during criminal trials should be open to public evaluation. I don't know how much clearer it could be that the Michigan Supreme Court has said, hey, all you judges, all you prosecuting attorneys, the public has a right and a responsibility to be using that watchful eye to evaluating what you are doing in these cases, how you are handling these cases, especially in criminal cases.
the very public itself has a substantial interest in assur assuring that justice is openly and fairly meted out in its name. The public must also be confident that its judicial representatives do not abuse power, which the public confers upon them. Again, government doesn't have its own source of rights or authority or power. Literally every single government official and government agency from the smallest in a, in a small township in the middle of nowhere up to the presidency of the United States, every single government official and government body has no authority on its own, but only the authority and the power that has been given to it by the people through the U.S. or state constitutions. If it's not there, they don't have that authority. Um, exactly. Corrupt officials don't want people to see what's going on because then you'll catch them. Um, so uh, exactly. Good point there that uh, one of our viewers uh, is making right now. Um, the court um, may inhibit the public's statutory and First Amendment right. So they're saying uh, th that um, the U.S. Supreme Court and the Michigan Supreme Court have both uh, understood that the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution means that the public has the right to access to, to criminal proceedings. Okay. Um, but that that right for the public may be reduced or infringed in some way if it is necessary to uphold the due process clauses fair trial guarantee to the accused. Actually, it wouldn't just be the due process, but it would be, yeah, anyway, there's multiple provisions involved. But so there is that um, Sixth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, you know, those provisions of where criminal cases, the rights of, of defendants in those cases are um, talked about. And um, the what the court is saying here, the U.S. and the Michigan Supreme Courts have said is the, the public's right to access these criminal proceedings, uh, which exists under multiple ways, but including the First Amendment, that right may only be kind of shoved aside or held down momentarily if it's needed to ensure that a criminal defendant's right to a fair trial happens. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but if there's something about it where a defendant would not get a fair trial by having the public involved in a particular aspect of a case, then you, you know, you would have to go with that individual's right to receive due process because it's their rights that are being uh, deprived uh, if the case goes through um, to conviction. Um, public policy. Public policy is uh, can be seen not only in the longstanding constitutional guarantees to a, a public trial, and I say longstanding because as just in the Michigan Supreme Court alone, the Michigan Supreme Court pointed out in a 1985 case that um, the, the right to a public trial has that wording, that guarantee has been in every single one of the state's constitutions, starting with 1835. 
And then I put in there what parts of the different constitutions you could find that right to a public trial. Uh, the Constitution of 1835, of 1850, of 1908, of 1963, and that's the current one that we have. So it's been something that's been around and, and protected by the state constitutions for a very long time. Um, but also there's longstanding statutory guarantees to public um, trials and public hearings. In Michigan alone, the right to have that open hearing on any kind of hearing that we talked about earlier, MCL 600.1420, that law has been in place since before <laughs> 1846. 1846. That's almost 200 years. Um, and again, you know, we talked about this concept um, as well, and I'm seeing all kinds of weird formatting that I thought was fixed, but you know, whatever. Um, a trial is public. Okay, this is the U.S. Supreme Court explaining that you a trial is public when a courtroom has facilities for a reasonable number of people to observe. We kind of touched on that earlier, where the facilities are not so small that it's really rendering the openness negligible. Like, okay, five people can show up or even 50. If it's something where a thousand people are expected to come and show up and only 50 are let in, that's not appropriate. If it's something where, you know, you typically only get five, but 50 have shown up, and it could be expected, given the type of case or whatever is going on, then you have to make that accommodation uh, and, and use other facilities. So um, it says when the public is free to use those facilities, um, you know, you, you can go to another facility if you need to. Uh, and when all those who attend trial are free to report on what they observed at the proceedings. So again, it's saying, in order to have a public trial, the the courtroom has to be reasonably big enough to accommodate people from the public coming. And you have to have free use of the facilities. They can't throw my husband out of the courthouse because he's trying to peer through a little tiny window to see what's happening in the courtroom. Uh, he has the full right of access there. And um, that people um, like the media who were also precluded from uh, being part of or, or um, watching the proceedings live that day, uh, they were um, precluded from that. And the, and the Supreme Court has said, no, it's only a public hearing if people can report on what's happening. But um, the First Amendment guarantees of freedom of speech and the freedom of the press protect that right of access to places traditionally open to the public, such as trials. I mean, that is point blank put into the words of the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, and so, you know, you need to just check out the rest of the stuff that I have on here. Um, it's It's been on the screen for a little while. I've been scrolling pretty slowly, but also we'll share it in full on Thursday. Um, but it's talking about the fact that publicity of court proceedings, uh, there's a very important role there because that's to ensure and uh, prevent abuse. It's a natural check on unjust prosecution and abuse of judicial power. It's exactly what's been happening in my case. Um, and um, again, um, 
you know, it, it, there's just more talk about the beneficial effects of public scrutiny upon the administration of justice, uh, the press uh, acts to assist the whole public in guaranteeing the openness and integrity of a judicial process. Um, but there's a lot more with that. Um, definitely reread some of that to let it sink in because they're not just words on a page from some old court cases. No, it's going to explain why, um, I mean, things that should be common sense, but where the government has has programmed us for years to think, oh, no, no, you only have right to do things that we tell you you have the right to do. Um, these cases put that all back in check. Um, but the last piece of the governmental transparency is the part that we are talking about um, from the initial incidents happening with these Allegan County um law enforcement officers is dash cams and body cams. Uh, and Lando, you have to um, tell me if it was you or my husband, but recently one of the two of you was telling me that um, you had researched and the Allegan County had actually been approved for body cams and dash cams, but they're just working out the procedures and how they want to implement something like that. Was that you or was that my husband telling I you I think that? that was your husband, but just to add on top of that, I was told they were approved to have them installed this year, beginning of this year, but it has yet to happen. And just the point we're trying to make, had they followed through with having those installed, say earlier this year, like January, February, this man, this 20-year-old uh, guy at Comstock Park near Grand Rapids, would he have been shot and killed if those cameras were rolling? And I'm not here to, you know, change the topic, but, you know, there was a shooting in Grand Rapids and about the cameras being on, off, witnesses with phones and everything. So would it change the outcome? We just want people to be held accountable. We're not out to get anybody. So as it stands, they are approved to get cameras on a person's vehicles already installed. Not yet, for God knows why. And like you said, because it got to work out the fine details, whatever that means. Yeah, it's called plugging it in or making sure it has a battery. Wow, that sounds really hard to do. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Allegan County, I'm not sure why this is complicated for you guys. But uh, for those of you who do stalk my videos and postings, I'm talking to you. It's not hard. You literally make sure it has enough battery. You go through the, the the technical, you know, manuals and figure out, you know, how to turn them off and on. Obviously, we don't need things recorded when an officer is going to the bathroom or things like that. So, yeah, there's a little bit of instruction you want to give your officers. But otherwise, you put it on, you turn it on, and they do their job. And that way, they're covered if you have any allegations of wrongdoing by protesters or rioters or whomever, uh, but also the public is covered because then individual rights cannot just be trampled upon and have it be a he said, she said about what happened in those scenarios. Or in this case, a he said, because the other side is no longer here with us to be able to speak for himself. And, and I want to quick add to that too, because I didn't get the chance to clarify earlier when I was talking about my story and I don't want to take too much time. When I talk about the officer line, it's about the most pettiest stuff that's totally unnecessary. Because in my video, I handed my driver's license immediately. And his police report, he said that he had asked my driver's license several times. And in court, he said that he never got it until he booked me and went through my wallet. Why would you lie about something so stupid? It, it, it's just nuts. So once again, I don't know what happened with the guy that got shot and killed in Allegan, who's only 22 years old. And to me, it's, it's heartbreaking because that was somebody's family member. A traffic stop escalated that much. This wasn't a burglary or somebody was being sexually assaulted or some of that nature. Maybe the guy was going 10 over. Maybe the guy was just in a 
wrong spot at the wrong time. So, and, and that's why I'm really, uh, I really want to help out Catherine here because all she was doing is helping out her volunteers. And I don't know how the hell trespassing on public parking lots and grass when you're over a hundred feet away from a polling place, it, it's ridiculous and something needs to happen. Maybe they need a new prosecutor, a new sheriff, a new county commissioner. I don't know. Uh, we need to be praying about this and we need to be proactive about this, uh, all these scenarios. And I really hope people will donate to Catherine. will show up for Catherine because she is fighting for us and I'm glad to be your friend. And these people do need to be held accountable immediately. Thank you, Lando. And so to kind of close out, you know, this fourth topic, um, these are just some pieces that really go to why body cams or dash cams on law enforcement officers would be appropriate. So one piece, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court made it clear that the constitutional safeguards we've been talking about, pieces in the Fifth Amendment, um, well, the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, Fourteenth uh, Amendment, you know, you name it, those safeguards relating to the integrity of the criminal process uh, they exist at every single stage of the criminal proceeding. They start with arrest and they end with the trial, uh, which isn't even entirely true because you have rights before and after that as well. But the, the whole point being in that situation that the in every single stage along the way, you have rights. It's not just at a trial that you have rights. Um, and in fact, in 1938, the U.S. Supreme Court came out and, and explained courts must, not optional, must indulge every reasonable presumption against the loss of constitutional rights, against the loss of constitutional rights. So, you know, if there's a scenario where somebody, um, you know, there's two options and in one, you know, a, a defendant loses their constitutionally protected freedom and another option where they don't, the court has to take the route where the, the defendant does not lose that constitutionally protected freedom. Uh, the Michigan and U.S. Supreme Courts have noted that arrest is a public act. So let's think about this in the context of why body cams and dash cams would be important. Being arrested is a public act that can seriously interfere with a defendant's liberty. Just the act of arrest, right? Not even talking about an outcome yet, but just being arrested can seriously interfere with the defendant's liberty, whether he is free on bail or not. And that may disrupt his employment. There can There is a drain on his financial resources to go through a trial, as there has been for mine. Uh, it curtails his association, subjects him to public um, words that I can't pronounce, so you can read it for yourself, <laughs> and <laughs> create anxiety in the defendant, in the defendant's family, in the defendant's friends. I could tell you, and it's too bad, I didn't think ahead of time to have Mike hop on just for this little tiny part here, but Mike is, he's made it a point that this is, aside from the whole, you know, there's no trespassing on government property and open to the general public and, you know, all these other things that they have done wrong. It's impacted our family. I mean, I have spent days and days and days, weeks upon weeks where, you know, I spent 10 weeks. I never left my house in 10 weeks in spring of 2021 because I was working on all these appeals and all these legal arguments to stop them from the snowball effect of swallowing whole all my God-given liberties. And he, Mike was helping me the best he could and Lori was helping me the best she could. And there I am, I'm supposed to be homeschooling. 
Um, she would have been, let's see, that was last school year. So she would have been in second grade or first grade. I had a little first grader at home that I needed to, to homeschool and spend time with. And I have other three older kids as well. And yet how much time did that really leave me to do anything with my family? I didn't even leave the house to go to church or the grocery store. I obviously didn't um, get to spend time with family and friends and, and it impacts them as well. So uh, it's it's a huge deal just to be arrested. So to say to somebody, I'm just following orders, or you know, you could just have your day in court and it'll get all resolved. If you're if you're innocent, then fine. There's nothing to be worried about. Yes, there is because the act of arresting somebody and making them go on the defensive to just keep their God-given liberties when they've done nothing wrong that is inherently wrong, and it's a huge problem. Um, and if if an, if a case is handled correctly, um, you know, efficient adjudication of the case will reduce the substantial impairment of liberty imposed on an accused, even while they're released on bail. Uh, it can shorten the, the disruption of their life caused by the arrest and the presence of the unresolved criminal charges. My anxiety has been through the roof since this case started. It's been almost two years. It's going on 20 months. You could better believe that this case has caused me a great deal of anxiety. Um, and certainly the knowledge of an ongoing criminal investigation will cause stress, discomfort, and perhaps a certain disruption in normal life. That is the Michigan Supreme Court quoting the U.S. Supreme Court. It is a real problem. Now, obviously, the young man, I can't remember his name. His initials are J. I just can't remember what his name is, but the 22-year-old yeah. man from Comstock Park, he doesn't even have the chance to be inconvenienced or, or stressed out or anxious uh, or have his finances drained. He doesn't even have those options because they took his life. So things can even get far worse. But we also have to recognize the damage that is caused to those um, where there's not those extreme cases of outcomes, but there's still damage caused just in having to defend something that's not legitimate in the first place. Um, and I guess that gets to the next point that I had here that uh, no one should be forced to endure the public strain, excuse me, personal strain, public embarrassment or expense of a criminal trial where there's no subject matter jurisdiction where there is no right for the court to proceed, where it's a made-up offense and it can't happen. Um, and in due process, in general, whether we're looking at any of these concepts, the whole, the whole point of having governmental transparency is that due process requires that someone who is accused of wrongdoing, that they be given notice, an opportunity to defend himself, as well as the assurance that the matter will be handled in a fair manner. And that's in a U.S. Supreme Court case that is explained what that means by due process. Um, also, the U.S. Supreme Court has explained, and this is from a 1937 case, so it's been around a while, the right to a open, a fair and open hearing is one of the rudiments of fair play assured to every litigant by the 14th Amendment as a minimal requirement. That's not even in a criminal case. That is saying for every case, civil, criminal, everything in between, you have the right to fair and open proceedings. And it is rudimentary that these things are fair and open uh, in, in order to have that 
14th Amendment due process secured. Um, and this I thought was very interesting. I thought you guys would, you know, I've never really thought about it in this way, but check this out. This is, uh, it comes out of a case where, um, I think this was the case where um, a judge was trying to say that his um, his opinions were um, like intellectual property and people couldn't reprint part of them without royalties or some stupid crap like that. Not even joking, but it it's it's interesting to think about it this way. And it is a reality. A trial court, a trial court is a public event. What transpires in the courtroom is public property. It's not just something in the judge's domain. What happens in that courtroom is considered public property. There is no special, uh, per, per, I, I can't pronounce words today. <laughs> um, it's, it's separate from, um, possibly from other institutions of democratic government, uh, where sometimes they have the right to suppress it, edit it, or censor it, um, no, there is no right to do that in court proceedings. It's public property. And lastly, to, to leave you with this thought, whether we're talking about rights um, that come from, you know, seeing open meetings or open court proceedings or having access to documents or, um, you know, the ability to see evidence of, you know, dash cams or body cams, think about this. And this is from a Michigan Supreme Court case from 21 years ago, but it applies the same in other states. Uh, there's just going to be other cases that you would look for saying this. But the court has the authority and in appropriate cases, the duty to enter permanent injunctive relief against a constitutional violation. What does that mean? If something is happening to stop your rights to thwart you from exercising your God-given liberties. The court has the right, has the, has the authority, but they also often have the duty, they have to step in to stop that government official or that government agency or whomever from trampling your rights. It's their job. So, with that being said, uh, we're on the outside time frame of, of when we typically go to episodes. Um, I'm just going to uh, close that out here. Lando, is there anything that you think we did not talk about today or comments you might have seen? I noticed. Oh, we got her back. Um, good timing, Lori. Was there anything um, that uh, I couldn't see when I had when the comments were covered up? Don't everybody all talk it now? I don't think so. Um, okay. The only thing I wanted to point out is that guy's name is Joseph Nigel out of Comstock Park, who was shot and killed by Allen County deputy who did not have his cameras running at that time. Because maybe they were installed, but they weren't turned on. We really don't know. But I think he did a great job, covered everything. And I think it would be wise to do maybe a part two on this. But I think you pretty much covered your base for today. All right. Well, um, thank you, Lori, for um, joining me today. Guess what? Uh, you know, I'm going to say every Tuesday we're going to have Lori on. Uh, thank you, Lando, for helping with this as well. Uh, Lori's like so excited. She just she's beside herself. Um, 
anyway, um, and don't forget, Mike's got to make that one video. So um, <laughs> you can just tell him in that sense. <laughs> At any rate, um, Lando's probably the only one of all of us who's comfortable doing videos. Um, so it's kind of funny. But um, anyway, um, I thank both of you for coming on today. And uh, I want to thank all of you who are joining us live on YouTube, Rumble, and Facebook. Um, who will also be joining us on our um, other platforms as well. Um, please make sure you are educated because, again, that important point that Joel has repeated from somebody else he heard share um, a while back, you only have the rights that you know about. So you need to know about your rights. You need to learn about them. You need to learn about the different contexts. And that's what we're here doing every single week is to give you a different piece of that freedom fighting picture so you can stand up for your God-given liberties and those of your children and grandchildren, your neighbors, uh, anybody around you, those who are oppressed, because that's what God tells us to do. So with that being said, I hope you join us tomorrow for our Wednesday's Way to Get Involved Challenge. Thursday, uh, that Constitution segment recap. Uh, Friday, we'll have freedom fighting tools, as usual. And our biblical insight on Sunday. Um, I have no idea. Oh, yes, we have a great um, Restore Freedom goodie of the week. It's not brand new to you, but it is something we haven't featured in a while and would be relevant to sharing this knowledge with law enforcement officers and government officials um, might be doing a little bit wrong or maybe just new and you want to make sure they don't go wrong. Uh, so with that being said, thank you so much for joining us. I'm constitutional attorney, Catherine Henry, and I look forward to seeing you on next week's episode of Restore Freedom Weekly at noon on Tuesday.